This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, a new security cooperation agreement in the South Pacific has the administration concerned about China's intentions. Then, what Russia's ICBM capabilities mean for the U.S.'s aging nuclear triad. And where do China-Russian relations stand? President Biden spoke with China's leader in March with a video call warning of consequences if China supports Russia's war in the Ukraine. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Solomon Islands in the South Pacific has ju have just signed a security cooperation agreement with China. Government leaders in the U.S., Australia and New Zealand see it as a threat to the stability of the region. Lau Goldstein is the director of Asia Engagement at Defense Priorities and visiting professor at Brown University. Lyle, welcome to the program. Nice to be here. So why are these islands geopolitically important to the U.S.? Yeah, well, they're located in, in an area of, uh, of importance in the sort of central sort of southwest Pacific. Um, so, you know, the Pacific is a, is a giant area, but uh, unquestionably uh, there are kind of new geopolitical tensions, certainly in the western Pacific. Uh, I do want to mention there's, there's a deep historical resonance. 80 years ago in the Solomon Islands was a gigantic and pivotal battle in the Pacific War. So I think that does explain part of the attention on this matter. So what does a security cooperation agreement actually mean? And what's in it for the Solomon Islands? What's in it for China? Mm -hmm. Well, there's some important background here to know. There, there were some um, uh, riots on the island in November 2021 related to uh, Chinese nationals. And I, I think that really is the um, what sparked this to come about. Um, you know, China naturally is concerned about the, the fate of its citizens. I think one was killed in that particular incident. Uh, and the, the island in general has been caught in this kind of tussle between China and Taiwan, where because uh, Solomon Islands recently changed its recognition to recognize China over Taiwan. So, so um, but the agreement itself, um, you know, seems to be pretty um, um, low key. Uh, so I, I think I, I'm warning against exaggerating the importance of it. You know, the, the Solomon Islands prime minister said that the agreement doesn't include permission for China to establish a military base. Australia's prime minister has called that a, quote, red line. Do you think Beijing will honor that? Do you think that that's the ultimate goal of China is to have a military base on the Solomon Islands? Well, it's a bit hard to tell. I mean, China has um, recently established a couple of military bases around the world, but it really has a very light uh, global footprint. Uh, we should keep that in mind, I think. And and uh, we don't, I, I think we, we have to be careful not to, um, uh, you know, stoke up the tensions, which, which uh, you know, already exist there. And I think uh, could, could get much worse. So. You know, I, as far as their future intentions, I think it's hard to know that the, the prime minister of the Solomons has said emphatically there will be no uh, Chinese military base. I think at this point, you know, um, given what's going on, again, we, we 
should take the prime minister at his words and not turn this into a um you know some kind of showdown i think i even saw one analyst mention the cuban missile crisis i think we're very far from that and we need to just keep cool and uh you know not exaggerate well, speaking of keeping cool, you know, you've written that Australia's reaction to the news of the agreement is, quote, hysterical. Why do you say that? Well, look, Australia is a very strong country. Uh, it's 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 a thousand miles from the Solomons. It's several thousand miles from China. I, I really don't see any uh, grave threat to Australia at all. I think it's it's well prepared for any contingency that could occur now or in the future. I think Australia should maintain its course, which is, you know, cautious. But I, I don't. I, I think Australia is not well served by uh, stoking up tensions with China over, uh, you know, rather minor issues. Again, most of this seems to have derived from this uh, riot that occurred in November 2021. I, I don't see this as a kind of uh, any kind of looming threat to Australia, New Zealand, or certainly not the United States. So what do you recommend American policymakers do, if anything? Well, I mean, I think that we should focus on, on uh, you know, making sure that we're defending our own uh, territories very carefully. You know, for Australia, that, that the, the meaning is obvious, New Zealand as well. Uh, but for the U.S., you know, we focus on uh, Hawaii, Alaska, Guam. Uh, and our, really, I, I was trying to say in that piece that we should should put the emphasis on Japan as the major kind of cornerstone of our security in the Asia Pacific. And, you know, so so that really is essential. We should not, you know, get our bee in a bonnet about, uh, you know, China's growing influence in the South Pacific. It's it's inevitable. And, you know, I don't see it as a grave threat. You know, China just made an important contribution to the island of Tonga, which was on, in, you know, kind of humanitarian disaster. And, you know, so China, we've got to have a balanced perspective. China's doing, you know, some okay things out there, some natural things for rising power. If we turn every uh, little um, issue into a Cuban missile crisis, boy, we're, we're going to have a very difficult All way. right, Lyle. Well, we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Still ahead on Government Matters, Russia's latest ICBM test and the urgency of modernizing the nuclear triad. We'll be right back. Russia conducted its first flight test of the RS-28 Sarmat intercontinental ballistic missile last month. It underscores the need for the U.S. to modernize its nuclear triad. That's according to Brad Bowman. He's a senior director at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and a former national security advisor to members of the Senate Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committees. Brad, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to see you again. So NATO calls it the Satan II. Describe the Sarmat missile and why the nickname? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so, so most militaries in the world, they have names for their own weapons, and then often their competitors or adversaries have different names. And... And uh, Satan is the uh, the name that was given to the uh, the RS-18, the predecessor to this RS-28 Sarmat, which is effect, uh, not so affectionately dubbed the Satan II. Bottom line is it's a three-stage silo-based liquid fuel heavy intercontinental ballistic missile with a reported range, reported range of about 18,000 kilometers. So what that means to your viewers is this is a Russian missile designed to hold the American homeland at risk. That's the bottom line. And it's designed to carry um, more, at least 10 multiple independent reentry vehicles, 
uh, and aids to uh, avoid uh, interception and can also reportedly carry the avant-garde hypersonic glide missile. Bottom line is this is Russia spending its finite resources to modernize its nuclear triad, including its ground leg. So it can evade American missile defense systems. Uh, um, well, so Putin has touted uh, particular attributes of the missile, including its short boost phase. Some of you viewers may know that during boost phases, when missiles are often the most vulnerable because of its, its heat signature and because of its slow traveling speed at that point. Um, and he's also touted its range, which would allow it to travel not only over the North Pole, but over the South Pole. And, and open source information makes clear that most American missile defense uh, sensors are focused, uh, in the past at least, on the North Pole, not the South Pole. So Putin has touted that going back uh, in March 2018. He touted this missile. Uh, and in, after this successful first flight test, uh, you know, he, he made provocative statements such as, you know, this is food for thought for anyone who wants to threaten Russia. And that really kind of stands in stark contrast to the disposition of the Biden administration with respect to our own tests. You know, the plan then is for the aging Minuteman 3 would be replaced with the ground-based strategic deterrent. Is that essentially just a newer version of the same missile, or is it fundamentally different? Yeah, you know, um, some of your viewers may know the Minuteman 3 was designed, you know, and fielded roughly 50 years ago, and it had an intended life of about a decade. So we've been kind of nursing this thing along long past its intended life. Uh, and, uh, and it's really time to replace it. And, and pretty much any expert that looks at that agrees that, you know, it's this, we need a replacement for the minimum three ICBM for our own nuclear deterrent. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the testimony, for example, of Admiral Charles, Charles Richard, the commander of U.S. Strategic Command, um, uh, you know, he's emphasized the need to, to um, modern, to develop the, uh, to fill the Sentinel on ground-based strategic deterrent, and also to continue to test the minimum three, because as it ages, right, it gets more expensive to maintain the reliability concerns. And so if you look, you listen to our, our military leaders, including Admiral Richard and also the head of Global Strike Command, they're, they're saying these tests need to go forward. And I would just hasten to note that we canceled the test in March for fear of provoking Putin, clearly a concern that Putin himself doesn't have with respect to us. Brad, do we still need all three legs of the triad? I mean, for example, can we do with just the ground-based missiles and the sub-launched missiles? It's a great question, which I welcome, and I'm on the record for a long time arguing yes. Uh, and here's why. Each of the three legs of our nuclear triad offers something unique in terms of protecting Americans and preventing a nuclear war that no one wants, right? The sea leg, you know, our Ohio-class, assumed to be Columbia-class attack, some, uh, excuse me, the submarines, uh, are survivable. They're difficult to detect. Our adversaries don't know where they are, so they could never be confident in a nuclear exchange that they wouldn't have some submarine-launched ballistic missiles coming back at them. So that's valuable. The the air leg are our bombers. Um, they are they can be responsive, so we can send them out and then say, oh, you know, go ahead, don't don't launch those weapons. So it gives us some flexibility, the most flexible leg. And then the ICBM or the ground-based leg is is the most resilient or reliable. And so what we want to do is we want to present dilemmas for our adversaries. We want to make an attack on us so complicated and so difficult to even contemplate that they won't do it in the first place. That's the whole idea and that's the essence of deterrence. What's the estimate of the price tag for all the modernizing the U.S. needs to do for the triad? You know, it's a great question. I, I do know that the Biden administration in its fiscal year 2023 budget requested $3.6 billion for the ground-based strategic deterrent program. Um, I don't have the total number for all of them combined in front of me, 
um, I can get that, but I would tell you it's a bargain uh, compared to uh, what, what would happen if we didn't maintain a reliable modernized nuclear triad. There's also the issue of nuclear command and control systems um, yes, that, that we haven't even started talking about that would also need to be modernized. That's right, and, and, and this is something that the Pentagon is focused on. You can have the best weapons in the world, but if your command, control, and communication systems are, are not reliable in a conflict, then, then uh, that, that's a vulnerability and, and that could undermine the whole deterrent endeavor. So exactly, as you, main, as you modernize these three legs, you also have to make sure they're knitted together with an effective, secure, resilient command, control, and communication system. All right, Brad, always nice to talk to you. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Be well. Thank you. Still ahead on Government Matters, will China offer Russia a lifeline? We look at China's relationship and influence with Russia. We'll be right back. President Biden spoke to Chinese President Xi for nearly two hours by video conference. The purpose of the call was to ensure that China doesn't offer Putin a lifeline and allow him to continue the attack on Ukraine. Ling Ling Wei is the chief China correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Ling Ling, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So the White House said that during the call, President Biden warned President Xi that there would be consequences if China offered material support to aid Russia's war effort. How did China react to that? Sure. Uh, shortly after the call concluded, uh, Chinese uh, uh, state media immediately released a statement uh, laying out China's position on the Ukraine issue, which is uh, basically can summed up as, uh, you know, China still doesn't oppose Russia. At the same time, China supports Ukraine. The seemingly contradictory uh, purposes uh, really shows that uh, you know China's strategic focus on sticking to Russia, uh, uh, maintaining this kind of alignment with Russia, still very much there. Um, and also, it shows that um, the stance on supporting Ukraine that shows that China, if they ever had intention to send military equipment to Russia. And now after this call, they would really think hard and think very hard about it and very careful about it. Uh, our understanding based on our conversations with uh, Chinese officials and foreign ex uh, policy experts that they will refrain from sending military weapon and military equipment to Russia. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out is that it's very interesting also uh, in terms of Chinese response. They highlighted this call as the need from Washington to uh, talk to China about potentially solving this crisis. So basically, uh, you know, the call was viewed quite positively in Beijing because it shows that the U.S. needs China here. So how does China view Russia's war on Ukraine? I mean, because I know that they value stability and, you know, status quo, and this has definitely changed things. So uh, at this point, definitely um, they are, uh, their uh, position on Russia's invasion of Ukraine remains very ambiguous, to say the best. Um, so what really, uh, I think, especially at the beginning, based on our conversations with people in the know in China, 
the Chinese leadership was somewhat surprised by the um, you know very audacious uh, assault uh, launched by Pre President Putin on Ukraine. So they kind of were uh, caught off guard somewhat, didn't really know how to respond. But in the past week or so, their strategy had become more clear, which is, you know, in any case, China is not going to abandon Russia as a partner because they really view this crisis through the lens of U.S.-China competition because China, in China's view, China needs Russia as a partner to confront the United States. So, Ling Ling, how far is China willing to go to pressure Putin? And how much influence do they really have? That's a great question because it's, you know, obvious, right? If you really want this war to end, Xi Jinping should just pick up the call and tell Putin to back down, back off. Uh, however, it's, it's a really big question exactly how big of influence or leverage uh, Xi Jinping has over Putin. Um, and um, so this partnership, you know, both sides declared on February 4th is one with no limits, but actually it's showing its limits in real time. I think, you know, we're going to see more pressure from uh, the international world on China to be more proactively condemn Russia for its action. Um, but in terms of exactly how much they can help solve this crisis is still, you know, yet to be seen. And China has not yet condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine, at least not publicly. I wonder if China's complying with U.S. financial sanctions against Russia. So far, they have been, because um, Chinese banks and Chinese companies still very much need to access the dollar-denominated global trading system in order to do transactions. So, um, you know, even very early on during the invasion, when I talked to uh, my banking sources in China, uh, they basically told me our default position is comply, unless told otherwise. And that um, uh, situation, that, you know, stance remains. Um, and also, on the other hand, I would say China will try to maintain what they consider normal economic and trade ties with Russia. For example, they have signed, you know, very big oil and gas purchase agreements with Russia. And I do think that will continue. On one hand, um, you know, it's, it's, so, it's kind of a form of support for an important partner. On the other hand, China also needs secure its energy supplies. You know, is, is President Biden had discussed concerns that the Chinese government was spreading disinformation, um, repeating Russian claims that um, the U.S. is supporting biological weapons research uh, in Ukraine. What can you tell us about that? That just shows that uh, the kind of uh, U.S. bastion uh, will continue to dominate uh, Chinese media's coverage of this war. Um, you know, they have tried to tone down uh, the kind of uh, rhetoric that overly pro-Russian forces uh, try to sort of like strike balance between pro-Russia and pro-Ukraine. However, what hasn't changed is the kind of uh, rhetoric criticizing the U.S. and NATO for instigating this invasion. Uh, that just shows that 
for the Chinese leadership, the United States remains the biggest problem, the biggest strategic comp competitor. What does Russia want from China? And, and what do we know about any discussions that could have happened between Russians and Chinese? Uh, that's really a good question, sort of like in line with the one you asked earlier. Um, so exactly how much Putin is expecting to get from Xi Jinping in terms of, uh, you know, help, uh, uh, that, that's, that's really, um, you know, not super clear. But for one thing, he definitely wants to uh, continue the kind of uh, economic and, and trade relationship. Um, if he, I, I don't know, uh, you know, there are definitely intelligence, U.S. intelligence showing that Russia had asked for military supplies from China, help them, you know, uh, carry, continue to carry out this war. Uh, but question is, will China do it? Based on the indications so far, um, they probably won't uh, provide the kind of lethal weapon uh, to help, uh, you know, uh, Russia so blatantly uh, carry out this war. Think about it. If you see made in China bullets on the streets of, on the streets of Ukraine, you wouldn't have any deniability whatsoever. All right. Well, Ling Ling, thanks so much for joining us. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And you can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. Sign up for our email list on our homepage, govmatters.tv. We're back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers 
as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.